Welcome back to the Paris 21 podcast, Data for the People. I'm so excited to have uh, at our guest today, Gabriela Ramos. She is the Assistant Director General for Social and Human Science at UNESCO. Welcome, Gabriela, to our podcast. Thank you for the invitation, Johan. It's great to join you. Uh, I have to say that I'm a very fortunate person because uh, I have, of course, spent uh, a good part of my professional life in a wonderful institution, which is the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Uh, but then I moved to UNESCO, which is an emblematic institution of the United Nations systems that is uh, focused on promoting peace. So working with institutions that have such uh, uh, amazing goals is, uh, is a privilege. But it's not easy. It's not easy, as you know. You are also in the multilateral systems. And we are now facing a lot of pushbacks uh, on international cooperation. And we are also with uh, very uh, strong pressures uh, in the systems. But it's great, it's great, because I see both institutions are pursuing higher goals to foster inclusion, to deliver on the SDGs, and, and we'll do our best to contribute wherever we are. In the statistical community, we see uh, overall the current discussions about science and evidence-based policymaking as something uh, we really appreciate, that societies are realizing that doing policies based on good data, doing policy based on evidence, on scientific research, really makes a difference. So I was just wondering your perspective on the role of science in guiding policies. Is, is really what needs to drive decision-making. And you are completely right, Johannes. I think that this is not what we have nowadays in many places in the world. I think that one of the sources of greatest concern is this uh, explosion of fake news, of misinformation. But also the reality is that decisions being driven by very narrow, defined interests in terms of an election, in terms of uh, ratings, in terms of economic performance. And as you said, the countries that were fast in, in applying the decisions that had to be made uh, to contain the pandemic, they did much better. In UNESCO, we have something that I found very interesting, which is a recommendation to protect scientific research. Because we are also under a lot of pressure for the scientific research to go and give results that really support certain political views. This is really very dangerous because it's not only trying to uh, ignore the massive evidence that was provided in terms of what needs to be done when you have a pandemic like the one we suffered, but also supporting and financing work that is not uh, scientifically sound but that serves a purpose. We have lived through that, Johannes, many times. We have lived when science is used in a way to support political decisions, and it's not good. And so I think that we have this responsibility, because there is this backlash, to really push for the instruments that we have, to really push for the convictions that we have, that it needs to be based on science, because if not, it's not going to work. As you say, I mean, there is, uh, if you look at climate change, if you look at the topic of COVID, there are clear scientific established facts that can't be debunked. I mean, it's, it's 99% of the researchers are aligned behind certain uh, ways of describing this world. Yet, in, in highly polarized countries, we see that people don't trust the experts. The fact is that the, the lack of trust on experts should not surprise us. 
because if you take a look at the kind of economic policies that we have been carrying forward for the last uh, three decades, uh, in which we really put a lot of the emphasis on, on what markets could deliver, uh, and we really retrenched the role of the state uh, to provide with the safety nets and to provide with protection and to provide with the redistribution policies that are necessary. And then what happens is that in the last decades, uh, first, in terms of growth, it was not great because uh, the performance in, in many economies, even if, if we were growing, were not as it should. And then you have the financial crisis of 2008. And, and the fact is that the, the problem is that we had huge increase in inequalities, not only uh, inside countries, but also between countries. And what people see is that it has not worked for them. So why would they trust? And then COVID hit. And what happened, of course? Some people are winning because they're well positioned, they're well prepared to face something like COVID. And what happened with those that were already at the brink? With those that were already facing difficulties to keeping their children at school and that are not connected to internet or that have uh, non-standard jobs? Well, they're suffering. They were just pushed from the brink. And therefore, the fact is that we really need to make an effort as people that are engaged in, in producing advice for countries to give better results. The minute we give better results, we are are going to recover trust and we are going to recover trust in evidence. How do you think this changed also from the economic thinking of uh, putting people at the center. And I think you have been leading this at the OECD with a project called New Economic Approaches. Do you see a real change also within the economist slash policy advisory profession to put people first and not only to see that the cake is getting bigger, but also that the intrinsic uh, part of policymaking has to be people-centered and people-empowering, which eventually the economist profession has ignored for quite some time. I completely agree with you. I think that the Washington consensus and, and the neoclassic economists, I have to say it, got it wrong. <laughs> and the OECD got it wrong. And many people got it wrong in terms of this uh, unfettered uh, trust uh, that markets will always provide better outcomes than governments. And you remember that there was this mantra that governments should intervene in the economy only when there is a market failure. Well, we have not, not now market failure. We, we are a failure in terms of quality. And, and in terms of environment, because we were always focusing on efficient markets and we were not focusing on sustainable and how much we were depleting the natural base in which all the economic uh, processes uh, happened. And we were not taking care of the, of the inclusion part to ensure that everybody could contribute, but also that everybody would receive their fair share of the economic uh, progress. And then the fact is that this became not based on science. It was really also very ideological in a way in which you look for the aggregate outcomes, you look only at flows, you go for the GDP and, and GDP growth as if it was the whole purpose of life. It's a mean to an end. So now what we need to do is to, of course, we are not going to reject the, the fact that we need to produce growth, but we cannot continue measuring the success of our societies only based on material well-being and how much you produce and how much you consume. We really need to go to a broader set of, of objectives, and the OECD has done an amazing job with the well-being framework, and Paris 21 is also looking at these issues. And so you need to broaden the scope. And this is pretty much in line with the sustainable development goals, which are, again, looking at what people need, what people think, what people feel, without really only focusing on the consumer 
and the producer and the worker, but, but taking the human being as, as a whole in all of its dimension and the need that we have to promote a fulfilling lives for everybody. And then the real actionable element there is the role of the state and the role of the government, because governments are always called to save us when there is a big crash. <laughs> Nobody's questioning whether the governments all around the world have taken over the salary systems and are paying all the salaries. Nobody is talking about the fact that debt uh, in each single country will increase by 20, 30, 40 percent. And now we are realizing how important it is to have effective governments that are well prepared. And you saw it, Johannes. Germany, they have double the emergency units. They have double the number of beds in the hospitals. They have double number of uh, health practitioners than the average of the OECD. And then they fare better. So you see this capacity of the, of the, the investments in the capacities of the governments to respond and to be prepared and to provide for the services that people require is so important. And COVID has shown it. Can I just follow up on one point, is the gender equality and how is your perception on how the COVID-19 crisis impacts eventually differently on men and women, in, uh, in particular in, in developing countries, in poor and low-income countries? Again, I think that everything is so perfectly clear <laughs> that if you have vulnerable groups, they will suffer more when something like COVID happens. And this is exactly what happened with women. And we know it. There are gender gaps in all of the areas of our lives. There are gender gaps in salaries. There are gender gaps in access to opportunities. There are gender gaps on financing of their business uh, sector. There are gender gaps in terms of the amount of, of, of workload that uh, women take for the non-paid uh, activities. Uh, there are gender gaps in terms of taking care of children, taking care of the elderly. And all of these gender gaps, of course, put women in a much more vulnerable position to withstand the shock. And actually, one of the things that I did before leaving the OECD was to produce a policy brief to take a look of how women fare and and it was just appalling because uh, differently from the crisis in 2008 is not only the fact that 70 percent of the workforce in the health systems are composed by women but they are not the doctors and they are not the directors of the hospitals they are the, the real uh, warriors that are receiving the patients that are helping the patients they are the nurses they are the low uh, paid workers uh, in the system and we can say that they are the ones at the front line of the battle to save lives. But the other point is that, as I said, they need to continue taking care of children and spend from four to seven hours a day uh, investing in their families and in the elderly too, differently from men. That's, that's a fact. So when you close the schools, who's going to be more affected? Well, again, it's women. You ask me particularly for, for developing countries, I would say that all the features that I have reviewed now uh, affect advanced economies, but affect three times more low-income uh, countries, because women there are really not even enjoying their legal rights. If I can ask you towards the end of this uh, podcast, maybe uh, your vision for the next five years or so, uh, if I may ask you through an optimistic lens, and I think you are an optimistic person, <laughs> as, as we know each other. Um, so um, uh, what makes you, despite all the challenges and uh, things that holds us back, optimistic? 
completely right. I think that even though the size of the impact and the situation in which we are now uh, are not to be celebrating or, or writing back home, <laughs> uh, but the fact is that I feel we also have a very good opportunity to rethink how have we uh, decide our priorities, how do we decide the investments we need to make, uh, how do we prevent from being put in this vulnerable situation whenever we have another shock, because shock will always happen, as we say. So I feel that COVID is also a, a very good opportunity for these reflections. And I will give you one example, and this is something that Paris 21 you're doing, because we are in a, in a knowledge-rich world, and this is one of the good elements that you have the technologies and you have the the information to understand better what is happening. I think we need to make more investments in the systems to produce information and also to bet that the quality information is the one that is driven uh, analysis and the, and the conclusions and the policies that we take. It's impressive how much the digital technologies and the big data is allowing us to understand the, the dynamics of the virus, but also to really have this very granular information to, to take the decisions. But I also feel that uh, it also provides us with a, a wake-up call of where our efforts should go. And we started with the, with the question of people-centered. I would say let's change the way we think about health systems. We cannot continue considering as a cost. In the budget lines of our countries, we consider them as a cost, and they should be an investment. They should be like the education. Education uh, three decades ago turned the narrative and became a very important uh, input uh, for, for the economic and social progress. I think that health needs to be the same, needs to be equally placed like that. And second, the question of the capacities of government. And I think this is really important. I think this is one of the lessons that will remain with us and that will probably make uh, uh, initiatives like Paris 21 even more important than what it is now. Because it's very clear that in this very complex world with so many challenges, you need very effective governance institutions. You need very effective governments. And you need very effective leaders that have the information and they have the tools and that they have the capacities to be swift, to be rapid, to protect, to build. And, and I see that there is this emerging conviction in many corners in the world that we need to provide our governments with the means that they need to take the best decisions on behalf of people. Uh, thanks so much, Gabriela, also for this uh, encouraging outlook and also for reminding us about uh, the resources and spending of resources. I mean, you mentioned the support for data and statistical systems. Uh, the Swiss government has just issued together uh, a letter signed by the UN and the statistical offices to all heads of agencies of DAC countries, development assistance countries, with a plea to join the so-called BURN network, which is a network that supports data and statistics and that looks at more and better funding for data and statistics to drive better decisions in this COVID-19 world and also to achieve the SDGs. So uh, I think what you propose here is, is going into the same direction and, and uh, we really thank you for this. We also look forward, uh, Gabriela, to work with you more closely and with UNESCO as a partnership between Paris 21 and UNESCO. UNESCO is actually on Paris 21's board, so we are very keen to, to establish and deepen our relationship. And last but not least, we wish you all the best in your new position and we wish you all your best for driving this agenda forward and thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Gabriela. Thank you for the invitation, and I'm sure we will be cooperating together. I really admire the work you do, and uh, let's just use it for good.